and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Was this the week the general election starting pistol got fired? Or has the Conservative Party's circular firing squad taken some pre-election pop shots? On Monday, former Prime Minister Liz Truss gave a speech at the IFG, which, and I praise you here, set out why she had made the right decisions on the economy and why Rishi Sunak was getting things wrong. So was this the start of a significant ideological battle within the governing party or a sign of a possible post-election bloodbath to come? Truss also called for a rollback on the government's net zero plans, and 48 hours later, Rishi Sunak did just that. So what has the PM announced, and how will it play into the next general election? And then we take a look at the ongoing impact of another former Prime Minister on UK politics. Boris Johnson's time in office saw the UK constitution stretch to, and arguably beyond, breaking point. So what needs to be done to fix it? A new IFG report has the answers. We'll talk to one of its authors. Joining me throughout is IFG Senior Fellow and Net Zero Watcher, Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined throughout by the Daily Telegraph's political editor, Ben Riley-Smith. Hi, Ben. Hello. How are things going? Uh, they're going well, yeah. I'm ruthlessly self-promoting, but uh, I've come to terms with that. <laughs> Very glad to have you. Self-promoting on our pod. Why don't you tell us a bit more? Well, it is a book called The Right to Rule, and it is an attempt to step back a little bit and look back right back to 2010 and try to pull the threads together of this Conservative run in power, because it has been remarkable. Five prime ministers back to back. Nobody's done that for two centuries. They've overtaken new Labour now. I mean, think how much we talk in the political discourse about the Blair and Brown years. And it's trying to make sense of how they've done it, really. And I suppose the thread running through is just how ruthless this party pursues power and its ability to shapeshift in office. I mean, who would have thought the day after the Brexit referendum when the Tory government had been telling people, do not vote for this thing, they voted for it, and the party somehow managed to switch on a dime, and seven years later, they are still there in power at the centre. There is some kind of political alchemy going on there. So I've talked to 120-plus key figures, including Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, David Cameron, various chancellors, various insiders, to try and understand how they've pulled that together. I'm sure we'll come back to that throughout the pod. But let's begin with the story of the week, which came perhaps even to number 10 as something of a surprise. A leak on Tuesday night suggested that Rishi Sunak was going to row back on the government's net zero pledges. On Wednesday, at a hastily assembled Downing Street press conference, he did just that. Ben, when did you get a sense of this story? Well, to be honest, like the rest of the public, the minute the BBC broke that plan, I mean, we've been knowing that Downing Street and Tory strategists have been thinking again about net zero After Uxbridge, when they were expected to lose Boris Johnson's seat, they somehow clung on, and that was uh, a constituency that was impacted by this expanding ULEVs, the um, kind of low pollution zone that the London Mayor, Labour London Mayor, has been doing. So that gave an indication that possibly when you zoom in on the immediate financial impacts of the net zero push, some voters might be concerned about that. But I don't think anybody expected something so big so soon because it wasn't just one small element of net zero policy. It was kind of a whole package, the big one being the petrol and diesel car ban. So it was going to be banned from 2030, new sales of those cars, and that's 2035. Then a whole host of other ones, oil and gas boilers, energy efficiency rules for homes. And what was fascinating is what was felt to me the first big play in the kind of long election cycle that is now coming. Because for a year, Rishi Sunak's been on the back foot, essentially trying to put out fires on the economy and waiting NHS waiting lists and small boats. But now he is beginning to be more forward focused and saying, right, I'm going to start making some of these plays because he believes and his team believes they can put themselves on the right side of the voters and labour on the wrong side when it comes to the immediate financial impacts of the net zero transition. 
presumably the government's done the polling on this and they must think it's a vote winner. Well, Rishi Sunak publicly is saying, oh, this isn't about politics. Nobody else is saying politics and I'm not. (laughs) But yeah, absolutely. And when you look at the, there was a snap poll from YouGov that had 50% of people supporting the delay in the new petrol car ban and only 34% opposing it. And I think generally there is polling that shows when you say in the very long term, don't you think it's a good thing to deal with climate change? Everybody says, yes, yes, yes. And then you say, are you willing to take the hit in your pay packet in a year or two's time to do this? And then there's much more grumbling and furrowed brows. So clearly underpinning this as a belief in them that it's a vote winner. And do you think, just out of interest, that this was being saved up for party conferences and came early or was it just a few days early? I don't think it was saved for party conference. I never got the exact date, but there seemed to be a sense it was coming later this week. He didn't go to the UN General Assembly, which was this week. So maybe we should have realised that was a sign that something was cooking. And also to do something so big on one topic possibly feels a little weird for Tory conference speech. It should be his first one as leader needs to be slightly wider, my vision for the country, why I can win the election. Whereas this is a kind of total, quite deep piece of thinking about one topic. I don't think it was, but I don't know. Jill, what's your take on what Rishi Sunak announced this week? Well, I think it's very interesting to think back as to who was Chancellor when Boris Johnson announced the government's net zero strategy in 2021, which was after all what Sunak was really taking apart in this announcement. And I think that was Rishi Sunak and Ben's confirming that. (laughs) I think you can look at it at two levels. One is Sunak's critique that there were a lot of quite ambitious targets, no real plan to underpin them. And I think you have to say that there is quite a reasonable element there, that that was a legitimate criticism of Boris Johnson's plan. But you might have said, wouldn't it have been the role of a powerful chancellor and the treasury to make sure that the government wasn't committing itself to targets without some clue on how to meet it? One of the things we expected to see at the time of the net zero strategy was a piece of work being done within the treasury, which I think was gutted at the last minute, which was about the costs of net zero and how to pay for it and a sort of distributional analysis of what that meant. Now, you might feel that rather than just sort of decide to suppress that at the last minute, it might have been rather better if we'd had that conversation back then. There were because no figures, I think. I remember the, the, they released no the report and there were no figures in there. And there were sort of blank pages and it was a very <laughs> odd last minute hit job on that report. So that was really quite weird because what's really damaging about this, I think it's sort of damaging on a couple of levels. One is less some of the new deadlines than the fact that the government keeps on chopping and changing its deadlines. The UK transition to net zero is going to depend very heavily on private investment. And the government until Monday, I think, was reconfirming the 2030 deadline for phase out of petrol and diesel cars. So to suddenly have this handbrake turn to 2035 is something where those car manufacturers that had been gearing up to produce models for the UK market then, I think, are legitimately pretty miffed. I think the other bit you can take out of it is that the government does sort of take fright when nice long-term commitments turn into potential short-term costs. It's very different to ULES. ULES is something where I'm driving my car to work. Day one, I don't pay anything. Day two, I pay £12.50 unless I've managed to change my car in the interim if my car is one of the 10% that was ULES liable. This is quite different. Quite a lot of these things are quite different. It's only when I change my boiler. It's only when I buy a new car that I suddenly get hit by this ban. So whether this is really looming as a top of mind issue with people who are worried about how to afford next week's food bill, I'm not so sure. But I think the Prime Minister has sort of thought he's hit onto something. The really difficult bit 
and rather undermining Rishi Sunak's view that he is a sort of serious person here, is that the UK government had a strategy that people already were saying didn't quite add up to delivering the targets. I think only got us 93% of the way there and left gaps with the 2035 targets. He has now that being the government's like, own target, like, right? Removed quite a few of those big building blocks, not little biddy ones, but some of the really big planks of this strategy. He's also had a failed offshore wind auction, which was supposed to be supplying a lot more renewables into the UK. If you take all that together, it's quite difficult to square that with the we're still on target for those interim ones. He's very much focusing on I can still get there in 2050. But it does remind me of when I was in government, when teams would produce their plans, which basically sort of were read every quarter until the final quarter, in which miraculously everything came together and suddenly it turned green. So I think he's made the UK a less investable environment, sound a bit dragon's den. I think he will have shaken the confidence of a lot of the business community. I think he risks reopening that consensus. I think he's really embarrassed two people this week. The people from the UK who are at the Climate Week at the UN General Assembly, he chose not to attend. But Alok Sharma is there. Oliver Dowden is there representing him, presumably on side as a loyalist, but quite difficult. And King Charles, who I think today is hosting something or speaking about climate in Paris. So diplomatically, I don't think they'll be writing lots of big thank you letters to Rishi Sunak for making their task there. When I was in government, some of the big arguments in the Environment Department and the Treasury was whether it made sense to be a leader on climate change or a fast follower. And in the Environment Department, we always wanted the UK to lead, very good for international kudos. And we would argue that meant you got the sort of green jobs, the green industries and things like that. The Treasury was invariably quite sceptical and thought, why not let others take the risks, stick their notes out in front, let them drive the cost down, and then we can surf in behind them and do a bit of tailgating. And I think that's what this strategy is. So I think it's a bit of Treasury strikes back on the net zero strategy. It's just a shame Rishi Sunak wasn't part of a collectively agreed and stuck to net zero strategy back in 2021. Ben, how do you think this is going down within the Conservative Party? There's obviously Sunak's decided it's a vote winner, but there's a sizable chunk of at least the parliamentary party who are presumably less convinced. Well, I think what you've got to try and do is separate the people who are super vocal and then where the kind of majority of MPs and the majority of members and the majority of Tory voters are. It, because of the way this kind of tumbled out via a league, the ones who were immediately very vocal and very critical were those most eco-warrior-ish. So Chris Gibmore, who within hours was not ruling out putting in a no-confidence letter against Rishi, Alok Sharma, former COP president, now on the back benches, Simon Clark, who was part of Liz Truss's administration but is quite an advocate of climate change action. But whether that is... 10 people or 100 people or half the parliamentary party remains to be seen. I mean, Downing Street is very confident that that, that is a small minority and that the vast majority of Tory MPs are nodding their heads and saying, yes, this is a good thing. And you're beginning to see hour by hour a lot more of that side coming out. So my gut feel is if you had to ask all of the 350-ish, the sizable majority, if not more, would be supportive of the move. And does Boris Johnson's intervention count for anything at this point? Well, there is. I mean, Rishi Sunak really didn't hide his swipes of Boris Johnson in that press conference. I mean, he said people can't just make short-term promises without telling the public how we're going to get there. And Boris Johnson hitting back. I think the truth is Boris Johnson is very isolated and was very isolated 
by by the time he left Parliament. You know, he tried to go over the top with Brexit and vote down the Windsor framework. I think just two dozen Tory MPs voted against it out of 350-odd. Then over Partygate, the minute that report dropped, proposing that he was kind of suspended for a very long time, in the early hours, there was a kind of, oh, we must rally to a side and reject it. And then it became there were so few Tory allies who were going to do that. They then said, oh, no, no, it's not worth them. Um, let's just let it pass. I think seven people voted against that. So in the parliamentary party, he is very isolated. Among the members, you would guess that he has much more support. But maybe again, not you, on this? Maybe. Well, exactly. You would. I mean, the members are quite critical and net zero, according to all the polling we see. So you would suspect the fact that he's quite alienated in the parliamentary party and he's probably in the wrong place compared to where the members are, unlike a lot of the fights he picks, like Brexit. I don't think his intervention is going to have a huge impact. I think Richard Sunak did have some quite good points about we, at the time, were very critical when Theresa May switched the target from an 80% emissions reduction to net zero just through a one and a half hour debate in Parliament. Parliament's never shown that much interest in climate change committee reports, you know, carbon budgets and things like that, actually minimally scrutinised. I do think Rishi Sunak's right that this is sort of rather under-discussed in Parliament. I think he's right as well. Um, We have been saying that, that you do need to sort of expose the costs and the benefits of what you're doing and talk people through them and make sure you've got public consent. And the Citizens' Assembly that Parliament organised on this did suggest you could get quite a degree of public consent for it if you took people through it. So I think he had some very good points. He's compounded that by not announcing this to Parliament (laughs) and having a proper debate about it in Parliament. So... (laughs) Um, maybe that'll be scheduled for the first day Parliament comes back mm-hmm. in five weeks' time or whenever it is. But I do think that he did have a bit of a point that we haven't had a proper political debate on this and it just has mm-hmm. sort of gone through a bit of an elite consensus. I thought one of the really interesting arguments he made was if you believe in net zero, you have to accept that people need to be brought along with you, the financial consequences. Otherwise, people are going to rise up and revolt against this thing when the, when all these changes begin to kick in. And I don't understand all the moves in Europe well enough, but I think in Holland, there's been populist movements against net zero and the cost. And I think there is a truth to that. If somehow you want to deliver this huge once in a century switch of your economy, then you somehow need to square with people and take them along. And if you don't, there are genuine risks for populism and whether people just think actually it's not worth it. This is something that the IFG's, I mean, that Jill's said for quite a while now that politicians really have to engage with the trade-offs. Speaking for you, Jill. also has to recognise that he actually has a bit of a track record of chopping and changing policies in this area from his time as Chancellor as well. And that that raises the cost of net zero when the Climate Change Committee come out with their slightly optimistic assumptions that there's very little long-term economic cost, maybe a net economic benefit from switching to zero. They do predicate on the assumption that we get the sort of policy choices right, but we do have a bit of a track record of introducing schemes, not giving them long enough to bed in, killing them off, destroying supply chains, giving people incentives not to invest properly, and things like that. And I think this big switchback here does risk raising the sort of policy risk of investing in the UK, and that means ultimately you pay more for the transition you're going to have. Just to finish on this point, Ben, do you see this being a big dividing line at the next election? I was thinking about this last night. I see the Tories clearly trying to make it one, but what Labour have done quite effectively on a lot of these points is to try to kind of rub down the sharp edges. So on tax, they can see the Tories are going to try and do this, oh, a huge tax rise is coming. And they're getting out there now explicitly saying, no, we're not going to do wealth caps. No, we're not going to increase income tax. So I just wonder by next year, if okay, there will be this different on-car bans, but boilers, they'll say, yeah, we're not quite sure what we're going to do, but we're not promising to reverse 
reverse all that stuff and ditto a lot of actually these changes. And then you're hoping when the public get to the voting booth, are they thinking which of these slightly different but rhetorically very hyped up stances on net zero would I vote for? Or actually stepping back to I just want somebody who runs the economy well and I think the Tories have botched it. So I'll give Labour a go. So I'm not sure it will be the defining issue of the campaign. Winding back to the question of the Tories' record on the economy, let's wind back to the start of the week and Liz Truss's speech here at the IFG on Monday. Here's a clip of what she said. Now, some people say we were in too much of a rush. And it's certainly true that I didn't just try to fatten the pig on market day. I tried to rear the pig, fatten the pig and slaughter the pig on market day. I confess to that. But the reason we were in a rush is because voters had voted for change. Ben, what did you make of the speech? I thought it was fascinating because clearly these things have been percolating around her head day in, day out for a year, as it would if you had got to the top of your, the pinnacle of your career and it had all come tumbling down. And I mean, the obvious takeaway is just the lack of remorse or belief that she'd done something wrong. I think that is quite common whenever you talk to a leading politician you know, if you talk to David Cameron about Brexit, he doesn't say, oh, I should never have done that referendum. Or if you talk to Ed Miliband on, you know, if he said, oh, we never should have kind of countered austerity. I mean, so that's very often that they kind of work in the rationale for whatever they ended up at. But it was so striking when a number of journalists said, do you not want to express any regret or remorse? Because a lot of people's lives have been affected by the negative changes, even if you said there were other reasons for that. And she was kind of quite unwilling to engage with that. I thought that was one of the big takeaways. Do you think she'll be pleased with the reaction she got to her speech? I suppose which bit of reaction, you know, the kind of Twitterati were mocking her, but that's a particular part of the electorate or the Westminster bubble where, um, you know, we'd always say that probably with her. I think she wanted to get the kind of most fulsome defence of her position and I thought there were, you know, maybe away from the absolutely core cool stuff, there were some quite interesting elements. Questions that I took away, like as a media, are we too obsessed with the kind of punch and duty of politics rather than asking these bigger questions like why does America have half the energy costs that we do? And I suppose the interesting question is in the Tory party and the Tory grassroots and this leadership race, which if they lose, may be coming in a year and a bit's time. How resonant were her arguments on that? So it kind of feels like that's the main audience she's going for is trying to bed in some of these driving forces that she believes in that will play out publicly if there is a Tory leadership debate. So I expect on that front, she'll be quite pleased. Joe, what did you make of her arguments? I thought it was very interesting. I, I thought, as Ben said, it's very interesting that she took the opportunity to sort of double down rather than to show sort of thoughtful rethinking. Because I think one of the really interesting questions about it, and I thought you were pressing her very nicely on this in the Q&A, was her plan possibly could have added up if she'd done it in a different order. If she'd set out her very ambitious public spending plans, including massive cuts in the NHS or whatever else she wanted to do, or maybe to welfare, who knows? But if she'd sort of put up front, these are my spending plans, if she'd actually brought forward her ambitious sort of growth plans with some evidence that she possibly could have got that through a parliament that we know takes fright whenever it sees a planning reform coming anywhere near it and got that through her backbenches and then acknowledge that that then was there to make space for the reforms, the changes, the tax system she wanted to see. And again, as we've said, it would have been 
better if she'd focus more on tax reform than on tax cuts. There's really quite a lot of interesting things. If you're really interested in taking bold decisions on tax, reform first and maybe cut later. But I think if she'd thought through all of that, what I thought was really interesting was how she didn't seem to get the difference with the emergency measures taken during COVID. So she didn't seem to get why the markets reacted differently to an emergency panacea as a one-off that clearly would add sort of debt in the long term. But you really didn't have very much alternative to something that was actually radically changing the long-term structure of the public finances without obviously any evidence that you could really deliver through the cuts to offset it or indeed this dramatic boost to growth. One of the things that I do think is quite interesting is whether our planning horizons are too short. If you're really looking at turning around the economy, is it realistic to expect big impacts in the sort of very short-term public finance horizon? I think that is quite an interesting question. It's quite an interesting question on public spending as well. But I think most people have just taken away that Liz Truss has a sort of almost enviable quality of bounce-back ability (laughs) and shamelessness. And her arguments about what went wrong centred quite heavily on the role of the Treasury, the role of the ABR. I mean, we argued at the time that those were some of her core problems, if you like, that had she embraced or almost attempted to co-opt those institutions which are designed to give credibility to fiscal plans, possibly, as you say, Jill, in, in, in sequencing things differently as well, that she could have had a different outcome. But I mean, she flagged her own book, which will be coming out next year, apparently, in which she intends to address these themes. But what did you make of her, her arguments f- on institutions? Probably won't have a forward by Tom Scholar. Um, I think it's quite interesting because you could argue that Perhaps the Treasury didn't get in the way enough of her plans and actually she rather suffered from having decapitated the Treasury on day one, removing Tom and actually losing an awful lot of market macro expertise from the Treasury by doing that. Someone who did have credibility, both the international community and with market players in the city, she actually sort of rather hampered her efforts. Because I think Tom might have been able to advise her if they were open to any form of listening about how you could go about selling this sort of plan. I'm sure one of the things Treasury would have said would be you need all your elements coming together in a credible way. And I think if she'd engaged with the OBR rather than tried to sideline them to actually say, what would I need to be doing to produce something that you would say is credible? Would she still be Prime Minister? I don't know, as Quasi Kwarteng said, she would have found something else to blow up. Perhaps he knows her better than I do. But I do think she would have had a better chance of sticking with it. I mean, the other thing that she did and didn't really seem to take that much cognizance of was just how generous her virtually unlimited energy price guarantee was announced the day before with relatively little sort of uh, fanfare. But yeah, that those two things coming together just looked reckless. And the fact that then over the weekend when Pro Dawn it, we just got those comments out more of the same. Uh, so I think people just, you know, thought that people who couldn't be trusted with the public finances had taken the wheel and were absolutely deaf to any advice. And after all, it wasn't the Treasury that did for her. It wasn't the OBR that did for her. It was the markets that said, we haven't got confidence in this economic management team. And she didn't seem to recognise that at all. I think one of the really interesting what-ifs and one of arguably the errors was to decouple the big announcement on tax cuts with everything else because when I was talking to a lot of these people for the book and I was trying to understand what went wrong in some of their arguments 
were, look, we were going to go to the OBR and that was coming later. We were going to do spending cuts and that was coming later. We were going to do all these supply side reforms and that was coming later in this second fiscal event of the autumn. But we wanted to do something quick to deliver our tax cuts, the ones we promised. Some of that had a um, time limit because the, uh, I think the national insurance had already risen so they wanted to reduce it as quickly as possible. And that swelled and swelled and swelled. But if you had done it, the tax cuts at the same time as the spending restrictions with the OBR and all your supply side reforms kind of locked in, whether there would have been that immediate negative bond market reaction. I don't know. Maybe there still would have because they were so radical. But you'd also had to have confronted the fact, could you really plausibly come up with the scale of spending cuts to make your numbers add up? And I think it's very easy to talk big. You know, I'll take 50 billion off spending, translate that into what that means for budgets. Especially if you're also going to put up defence spending. How helpful was this for Shisunak? Well, I mean, clearly, if you're replaying the kind of blunders of last year, which the electorate clearly turned their thumb down when when it happened, because there was that sharp drop in the opinion polls, then not that usefully in every, probably from a strategist, every minute the public is thinking about what happened last autumn uh, is more likely you'll lose the election. So I'm sure they would rather this trust quietly and didn't talk anymore for the next year. But then I suppose there's an argument that Rishi Sunak's entire drivers are, I'm Mr. Sensible and I'm repairing the funds. So you could put a positive spin on it like that. But no, I think, you know, there's that classic cliche of split parties don't win elections. And there is a danger. You could see a scenario where the wheels fall off the bandwagon and the guns turn inwards in the run up to the election because people are looking at the polls and half showing ankle for the leadership election that could come. So there's going to be a big challenge for Rishi and number 10 somehow to keep this unity that they have actually done rather well in in the first year papering over the cracks. And your book has, as you referred to, a fascinating account of how things unraveled. Did you have a sense that there were the lessons that she's learned from that? I think probably the core. And I think that quote you mentioned, which is quasi saying, look, I love her dearly and she's a very honest and sincere person. But if it wasn't a mini budget, she would have blown up over something else because she wasn't wired to be prime minister. She didn't have the temperament to be prime minister, which is quite a provocative telling comment and I suppose if you're her supporter you say oh he's trying to put distance from his own package but there was a consistent message in all these people I talked to in the trust premiership and Downing Street and cabinet minister allies who said she always wants to do this thing of going bigger and bolder on any package so Asa Bennett in a previous documentary BBC documentary said it was a spinal tap thing turn it up to 11 everything always needs to be turned up and up and people would describe to me as a cabinet minister civil servants would say right we propose you do 50 of this and she says right I want 150 and there's a panic conversation with the officials and the advisors who say come on we've got to come up with something better and then they come back with 175 and she says okay I'll go for one of those which meant she succeeded in getting the civil service to go further and getting Downing Street to go further but when you're prime minister there is nobody else telling you no you can't go all the way up to 11 and so as she swelled and swelled the tax package there was nobody to kind of put on the brakes especially having kind of cut away some of these forces with Tom Scholar and others so I think that kind of radicalism and that push to go bigger and bolder was there. And I don't think that has been suppressed by what happened and last how, autumn. And how strong is she still in the Conservative Party? I mean, how many Conservative MPs who supported her for leader? Obviously, Rishi Sunak led in that. And there were quite a lot of votes for Penny Mordaunt still in that uh, final round who just failed to beat her. But does she still command a lot of Conservative troops there who think she 
you know, it's hard done by. She really is the leader they need or her philosophies are the ones that really appeal. Well, I think as the figurehead for that movement, that is clearly over when you have, you know, her number two being so public about what he saw as some flaws that meant it was never quite going to work. Not that much, but I think the agenda she was standing for, call it whatever you want, the kind of pro-growth agenda or pick into items, you know, cut, tax, scale back regulation. I mean, that is that has a wide support base. Obviously, the question is how you implement it and when. It's interesting whenever Rishi Sunak phrases the, we can't do tax cuts now, it's always, I want to in my heart, I want to do this stuff, I want to scale it back, that's who I am. But you've got to match that with the reality of now. So that is, you know, that has a very potent connection with the grassroots, that message. And I don't think that is going away. And should there, should the Tories lose and there be a leadership election, I mean, people will be standing up trying to champion that. And it's going to be hard. Who's going to be the... Who's going to be the- Trust Mark too. Well, I've opted out of predictions because all mine are always wrong. <laughs> you but and me I, both. But then. the big question is whether is whether I think is whether you see not quite an inversion of the Corbynism, but this idea of look. So the Corbyn thing was like we were in power for thirteen years. We just had five years of Miliband trying to do this triangulation in the middle. Let's just go for what we really, really believe in. Because I'm sick of those compromises. I wonder if that same dynamic will play out if they lose big that, look, we've done 13 years, we got into a muddle trying to stick in power, we didn't really implement what we believed in at the end, so let's just go for what we really believe in now. And somebody on that figure, be it, I don't know, Suella will try and champion that, and Kemi will try and champion that, and whether it's one of those people, that's where the, the mood of the, of the base is. I think that could be what emerges. Now, the price of petrol, the economy, cost of living, that's all going to dominate the next general election. But a subject that the IFG spends a lot of time thinking about should also be at the top of politicians' minds, and that's the health of our constitution. Because after the last tumultuous decade in British politics, the constitution has been stretched to, and sometimes arguably beyond, breaking point. So what's gone wrong, and what can be done to fix the problems? Well, that's the subject of a fantastic new IFG report, which we launched with a one-day conference here at the IFG this week, and you can watch that conference back if you would like to on our website. And both were the culmination of an 18-month review of the UK constitution, which we ran with the Bennett Institute in Cambridge. Now, one of the authors of that report, Jack Pannell, is a researcher here at the IFG, and he joins us now. Hi, Jack. Hi, Hannah. So, tell us briefly, it's been a bad time, or at least a, a testing time, for the constitution. Is this just a question of the approach taken by some individuals recently, or is it a sign of deeper problems with the way the constitution works? So you're absolutely right. It's been a very testing time for the constitution. I think the answer is that some of those specific events have exposed weaknesses that actually are much deeper and have existed for a much longer time. And so if we think about things like the the process of exiting the European Union, there are a lot of sort of debates and clashes between where power lies in the UK constitution. Is it with the executive? Is it with parliament? And even the courts getting involved in particular with the prorogation case and ruling on some of those disputes. Then you also had sort of the COVID-19 pandemic. You had sort of questions of how far can Parliament scrutinize the government in an emergency? And then sort of the repeated ethics and standards scandals, all of which have sort of created this sense that our uncodified constitution is, is struggling to hold up. I suppose there is a point to be made that eventually the, the political constitution did sort of work in that Boris Johnson was removed from power by his own MPs, but certainly that didn't happen in a particularly orderly or quick fashion. And so there's sort of several questions around the constitution that have come out of this time. One is that question of checks and balances and the reliance on sort of the supposed good chaps theory of government. 
how much do political actors regulate their own behavior and what are the consequences when they fail to do so? And that's been raised as not quite doing their job as far as they should. There are questions on clarity around those norms and conventions in the wider constitution. And that's something we've seen with some of those disputes of where have rules actually been broken and where does power actually lie within our constitution, which could do with clarifying. And then sort of a more long-term issue that we've certainly seen over the past 13 years, but isn't necessarily solely sort of happening then is, is about constitutional change in the UK. With our uncodified constitution, there's very little difference between passing a sort of a normal piece of legislation and a piece of legislation that changes the constitution. So you end up in situations where it's not necessarily very well thought through, the consequences aren't seen ahead of time. And, and even in the case of, say, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, it is introduced and then repealed by the same party. And so sort of an example of not really thinking about constitutional law as something that is maybe a bit more fundamental to the way that this country works. So we've come up with some proposals for how to make that work better, how to ensure that if politicians want to go about changing the constitution, they do so in a more orderly and thought-through manner. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so the approach that we've taken is thinking that what we really need is, is just to ensure that there's a bit more thought going into these things, that parliament is given enough of a voice in constitutional change. And the public we, too. And the public too, exactly. So we don't want to go down the route of, of, of codified constitutions that you see everywhere where sometimes constitutional change can become too difficult, it can become an insurmountable hurdle, but rather how can we make sure that everyone that should be getting input into constitutional change is doing so. And so we we propose forming a new parliamentary committee on the constitution, sort of an amalgamation of PACAC and the constitution committee in the House of Lords, which could sort of act as an authoritative voice on the constitution and be able to rule on what they think, not in a binding way, but in a way that parliament can have a unified voice on the constitution to give them a bit more of a say. It could also play a role in scrutinizing constitutional legislation. And to those ends, we also think there should be a bit more clarity on what law is constitutional. And so we propose coming up with a list of acts of, uh, of constitutional acts and sort of going for political consensus on that, on the bits of the law that everyone kind of already agrees are constitutional, you know, the Parliament Acts, the Devolution Acts, things like that, and creating a slightly stronger process for them. We're not proposing anything like super majorities or referendum requirements for all of these, but things like making sure there's enough time in Parliament, scrutinize them, putting them through pre-legislative scrutiny, and maybe even giving this new committee a specific stage in the legislative process. And then, as you mentioned, we also think the public, there's a lot of space for the public to have a bigger say in constitutional change. And so referendums are sort of the most common way that's been done, but they can be a bit of a blunt object and lead to a lot of division. And so across the world, we've been seeing a lot of really interesting ways of getting the public involved a bit more in these kinds of decisions, things like citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies. And those could be used at several different points. They could be used early on in the process to get citizens together to talk about what are the key principles that they want in constitutional change. You can get them involved in a citizens' assembly once the, the government has proposed, we want to do this change. You can get citizens together to look at the trade-offs and think about how exactly they want that implemented. And then they can also be really useful if you do decide to go for a referendum. And for example, in Oregon, you uh, get citizens' juries together before a referendum campaign, and they will look at the pros and the cons and weigh those up in a really balanced and measured way and then send that out and use that as a way to provide information around a referendum campaign is to information. To help the public make their decision. Exactly. Help the public make their decision in a way that has been produced by the public itself. 
Jill, this could all be quite relevant post-election. I mean, we've had some indications from Labour that they are thinking about constitutional change. If if anything that Gordon Brown proposed in his review ends up in the manifesto, things like House of Lords reform, devolution, these are questions that any party thinking about constitutional change in their manifesto should be thinking about. Yes, it'll be interesting to see whether there's any appetite in an incoming Labour government for doing things to strengthen Parliament's role and therefore the constraints Parliament's imposed. As we've seen various uh, various times before with Margaret Thatcher on select committees and then with the right reforms, you usually have to get in very quickly before new executive really realises just quite how much it likes having a rather patsy parliament. So I think, you know, this is a very timely report for saying, here's some things you can put put in. And I think it'd be really interesting to see if there's any appetite for thinking about that. Of course, some of your proposals would be slightly undermined if Labour went for something like the Gordon Brown reform of the House of Lords, because yours rather depends, I think, on having the great and the good in the House of Lords who would be useful members. It makes some ways more sense when you don't have it as a sort of partisan forum. And I think the really interesting question here is uh, also like some your proposal about strengthening the civil services, understanding of the constitution, maybe making permanent secretaries a bit more alive to some of their responsibilities to making sure that the ministers for whom they're working understand the constitutional significance of what they're doing and an ability to call out where they think um, uh, people are doing that. We saw a bit of that in some of the discussions we had over prorogation with the former very senior civil servants about whether actually there was anything the cabinet secretary could do if ministers went off uh, wanting to do things. And somebody said, don't even mention the cabinet manual because then they can work out they actually don't have to bother with that. If they have a cabinet manual, it has absolutely zero status. Ben, your book takes a close look at Boris Johnson and his style of government. Was it his willingness to break things or was it others close to him who were keen to break things, do you think? Probably a bit of both. I think I think there's probably a theme running through all of Boris Johnson's political career that when he's he chafes at constraints. So if there are kind of outside powers that are limiting what he can do, he gets frustrated by that. So whether there was a degree of that underlacing the kind of moving on of Mark Fedwell and bringing in of Simon Case, who hadn't had as much kind of departmental running department experience. Actually, there was a funny cabinet secretary story on the night. This is a kind of Boris chaos, but on the kind of going to the cabinet secretary advice on that crazy 48 hours when Boris Johnson was seeing all those ministerial resignations, they were somehow trying to keep the government alive. And they went to Simon Case and said, according to the constitution or the rules, how many people do we have to have as government ministers to be being a functioning government? And he said, in reality, it's kind of 70 to 100, but strictly speaking, it's only one. So you could have one, one minister who has all departments and that would still be constitutional. So I thought that was quite interesting. Clearly, there was a willingness to kind of push, push back at things that were constraining him. There was a scandal in Australia which discovered that Scott Morrison was appointing himself to lots of ministerial jobs without telling the people who thought they were doing those jobs, just as a bit of a backup at one stage, which was, did make you know, did make British constitution actually look relatively orderly. Jack, why should any government want to follow our recommendations? That's a good question. I think there's, a, there's several reasons why. I think at the core, we've gone through a very sort of unstable period in the constitution, and that has knock-on effects particularly for how the UK is viewed internationally. You know, we are historically this great old constitution evolved over hundreds of years, very politically stable, those kinds of things. And that certainly has not been the case in recent years, not solely due to the constitution, but certainly that has been a big contributing factor. So part of our pitch is saying, 
let's let's build a bit more stability into the system and that will go a long way. Another key area is is on devolution. We think having a clearer voice, a lot of uh, devolution, especially around the Sewell Convention is sort of yeah, monitored through convention. So being able to have a committee in parliament, as Jill said, sort of better advice in the civil service around these things, we can be a bit clearer on that and maybe help the relationship between central and devolved government work a little bit better. And also, I think our pitch is, if you are a government that wants to do constitutional change, which is increasingly something that appears in manifestos, then bringing in these more robust processes will give you more legitimacy. It will help protect your changes. It will help keep them for the long term, either because you've given parliament a more thorough scrutiny process resulting in better legislation, and because you've given the public sort of more input, which just gives you greater legitimacy on those changes. Maybe easier to get things through Parliament if you've got a public mandate. Ben, do any of those uh, justifications seem likely to hold water with politicians? You spend a lot of time talking to politicians, understanding their motivations. Well, you know what? Well, all this conversation has made me think about the Lords, and that's a really fascinating one because there's basically total political unanimity that the House of Lords needs to be reformed. And if you look back at all the manifestos of the parties for the last four or five years, there's always House of Lords formed in there. But then also when you get in power, it is never at the top of the list for how you want to spend your political capital because there are so many more pressing things. So it's how you sometime, somehow convince a government to spend the political capital and time and energy on reforming the House of Lords, which is probably why everybody always says, oh, it will be a second term thing. So if Keir wins big and then wins again, then he can turn to some of these more structural things. I do think it's a shame, though, that Rishi Sunak, after that sort of memorable Downing Street speech about integrity, professions and accountability actually didn't then follow through with any sort of agenda about strengthening some of these institutions. We thought if you really wanted to differentiate your premiership from Boris Johnson's and Liz Truss's and really say I'm a different sort of prime minister and I do think believe in standards. But maybe that's a long-term policy challenge that- Well, he's uh, pro those now, isn't he? decisions yeah. for a brighter future. Maybe that's the next one up is what he's going to do to- improve standards and increase constitutional protection. So maybe he's reading the report now and that's going to be next week's leak and speech. Let's hope so. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to Jill Rutter, Jack Panel, and especially to Ben Riley-Smith. Good luck with the book. When's it out? Next week, Thursday, the 28th of September. But it can be pre-ordered now, so please do. <laughs> you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms, as well as that new Constitution report. And yes, if you want to, you can listen back to that Liz Trust speech. While you're on our website, you can find all the details about our exciting programme of events at the Labour and Conservative conferences, as well as all the events we'll be hosting at our offices in London. Major speeches on policy, political consensus breaking down, former UK Prime Ministers on manoeuvres. A general election certainly feels a little bit closer after this week. Have a relaxing weekend, everyone. <laughs>